Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. Uh, I want to invite you to consider whether or not today you are going to be news obsessed or good news obsessed. I'm certainly going to encourage Christians to be good news obsessed today, even as the world is certainly uh, news obsessed. Maybe not any more news obsessed today than any other day, but um, the lather over potential impeachment of the president of the United States is has absolutely um, uh, taken hold of every news outlet. And so uh, it seems as if the crisis related, the growing crisis related to, let's say, income inequality, which the AP is reporting on. Last year, income inequality in America rose to its highest level in more than 50 years of tracking it, according to the Census Bureau figures. That is of concern to people across the heartland of the United States. Maybe that's of concern to you today. Um, be obsessed with the good news in the midst of a news-obsessed culture today. I think that we as Christians, um, we have to remember, I mean, I recognize this is a headline news-driven story. We're going to spend a lot of time today talking about uh, what everyone else is talking about. We're also going to talk about how to talk about that from a Christian worldview. But at the outset, I want us to be mindful of um, who is our head and let let Christ be the head today. Let him be the one who holds every thought captive. Uh, let him be the one who is the operating system of your life. Allow the Holy Spirit to be operating within you. Uh, do not respond to news headlines and sort of the barking um, pundit class. Respond instead to the Holy Spirit of the living God and what you know the Word says and the unchanging character of God and what he has for you to do in the world today as his agent of grace. So, um, yes, we're going to talk about the impeachment inquiry, but we are not going to become news obsessed. We are going to continue to be good news obsessed. So that's my encouragement to you today. Um, If you want to participate in this conversation, our text line is always open. It's 877-933-2484. Again, the text line is open during the show. 877-933-2484. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Carmen LaBerge or on Facebook at Reconnect with Carmen. Next up, Ben Johnson. He and I are going to jump into the conversation related to the formal impeachment inquiry of the president of the United States. Only the fourth time this has ever happened in U.S. history. It is a significant conversation and we're going to have it up here next on Mornings with Carmen. All 
All right, Ben Johnson is back. He is the rights writer. You can find him at the Acton Institute. You can also find him at the rights writer on places like Twitter. Welcome back, Ben. Welcome back, Carmen. So I'm going to try in one paragraph to sum up where we are um, on the impeachment inquiry for people who are not paying attention um, obsessively to the news. So Tuesday at 5 p.m., Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi announced that the informal impeachment inquiry, which was already ongoing, would now be a formal impeachment inquiry. There is a question as to whether or not she can unilaterally do that or if a vote of the House of Representatives is actually required in order to enter into a formal impeachment inquiry. You and I can talk about that. Yesterday, the White House released um, as close to a real-time transcript of the conversation as exists between President Trump and the president of Ukraine from July that Pelosi pointed to as the basis for moving in the direction of formal impeachment. Um, Interpretations of the contents of that phone call then ranged from, you know, smoking gun to nothing here to see. The president subsequently held a press conference alongside Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, and Steve Mnuchin. Later yesterday held another presser alongside the Ukrainian president. And since then, Congress has actually had the opportunity to read the whistleblower report, which I think was the um, was the spark for all of this. Have I summed up the news and then are we ready to talk about it? You summed it up with amazing clarity. Yes. I spent a long time working on one paragraph, man. Okay, so perfect. How does the what is impeachment? How does the impeachment process work? So impeachment is is, uh, not actually turning the president out of office. An impeachment inquiry just means that uh, you're going to investigate whether the president has committed high crimes or misdemeanors, uh, which is the uh, political term of art that's uh, in the Constitution. High crimes and misdemeanors, uh, contrary to what most people think, does not – that term does not necessarily mean breaking the law. Uh, It can mean any violation of the Constitution. It means a political offense. But uh, the uh, the way that Joseph Story explained it, a great jurist of our past, he said that uh, a president could be impeached for political offenses that include crimes, but also misconduct, gross negligence, usurpation or habitual disregard of public interest or unconstitutional opinions in an attempt to subvert the law. So that's those are grounds for impeachment. Uh, the House would uh, vote into as to whether or not uh, there are grounds for impeachment. They do an investigation. They hold a vote. If they believe that there is, then that would go to the Senate, and the Senate votes whether or not to convict. If two-thirds of the Senate votes to convict, then the president is uh, removed from office. Okay, and, and how many times in U.S. history has this happened, that we've we've actually reached the point where a president of the United States has been impeached and subsequently removed from office? There have been three uh, attempts at impeachment before this. One of them didn't get to the stage of impeachment because Richard Nixon resigned, uh, but he would have been impeached. There's very little doubt. His own caucus came to him and told him he didn't have support. Two other times, one with Andrew Johnson uh, following the uh, Lincoln assassination, the other one with Bill Clinton in 1998. And were either Johnson or Clinton ultimately removed from office? Neither of them, but Johnson came within one vote, and the uh, man who voted to uh, keep him in office end up losing his position as a result of it. He's in the book Profiles of Courage by JFK, by the way. Hmm. Okay, so we are we are really at a point um, that the United States has not been to, not been at frequently, certainly not, and um, we've never gone through this process all the way to the point of removing a president from uh, from his position. And so, I do think it's important for people to recognize just how um, serious the conversation about impeachment 
is supposed to be, and yet how unserious some of the conversations surrounding this um, have been in the last 24 hours. I think it's deeply unserious uh, throughout. For one thing, as you mentioned, there's a question about whether the proper forms were followed and so on. But really, it, when you when you have an impeachment inquiry, some committee has to be tasked with being in charge of it. Usually it's the House Judiciary Committee. And Nancy Pelosi omitted who was actually going to be in charge. So her own caucus is saying that this isn't a real impeachment because no one is in charge of, of running the investigation. So that's that's deeply unserious. Uh, on the other hand, you have this transcript which uh, has, has been released. Uh, apparently the full whistleblower's report has been released as well. Uh, having read the transcript, the whistleblower's report I have not seen yet, but uh, the transcript of the call that was being released, there doesn't appear to be anything approaching a smoking gun under the uh, political offenses that were delineated by Joseph Story many, many years ago or our founding fathers that would rise to the level of impeachment. There are a few things that would raise eyebrows. Uh, however, most of them... Uh, were introduced into the conversation through uh, actually the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. Okay. So there's people listening right now, Ben, who are they're, they're, they're likely going to glaze over. Um, and so I want, I want us to, um, you know, you and I are concerned about this. Obviously, there are lots of other folks concerned about it. But I think that when it comes down to, you know, just the people who are getting up and going to work and getting their kids ready for school and figuring out, you know, at the end of this week how they're going to buy groceries um, because, you know, two things cost more this week than they thought they were going to cost. Um, And, you know, and their prescription drug coverage ran out. And I mean, you you know, the concerns that people have and and they don't have any orders for their soybeans because we got these tariffs in China and they're going to have all these, you know, extra hogs in the pen and, you know, and. Pork is not, you know, not as popular as maybe it once was as the other white meat. Okay, so whatever, like, right? These are the concerns that, like, real people listening right now have. And, you know, can I afford to buy four new tires for my car? And so in the midst of all of that, we really just want our lawmakers and our president to do their jobs. And it seems as if um, the president cannot do his job because he is under constant, uh, not just scrutiny, but it's just the... I don't, I don't I don't know if I want to go so far as use the word attack, but I know that's a word that a lot of other people do use in relationship to the the constant barrage of challenge that our president faces from really every side. Is he can he actually do his job? I want to have that conversation. And is Congress actually doing its job in terms of what it's supposed to be doing? Yeah, I, I think that that question not only uh, attaches itself to this president, but can any president do his job uh, when it comes to the institutional gravity that's built up around what the president calls the deep state? Uh, and and uh, although that term has is, is now freighted with a certain political uh, ideology, really what you're talking about is the permanent institutional bureaucracy that has been in Washington, D.C. for generations – uh, and and I was uh, started out in uh, politics working for someone who was blowing the whistle on this back in the 1970s. Uh, the institutional bureaucracy uh, essentially says that it can wait out any president. If they don't like the orders that are being handed down by the duly elected uh, government of the uh, uh, duly elected president of the constituted government of the United States, then they can wait until someone comes along that they like. They drag their feet through certain uh, politicians and then continue uh, with their own idea of what the government should be doing. This has been going on for a generation. And really what's at the heart of this is whether the people will be in charge or whether the institutionalized bureaucracy will continue to rule the government 
uh, with uh, disregard and increasingly with disdain for the people who elected the government that's supposed to be ruling the roost. Okay, so you're right. The whistleblower complaint has now been released. It's actually now the topic of conversation across across every uh, every network um, out there right now. Ben Johnson and I are going to continue uh, our conversation about all things impeachment, what we actually know versus the speculation and interpretation offered by both sides. We're also just going to simply talk about the wisdom, the wisdom of releasing um, the contents of conversations between the president and other heads of state and what that, you know, what that does to a president's ability um, to function as the commander in chief of this country. So that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acted Institute. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Ben and I are talking all things impeachment, um, or at least all things impeachment inquiry, uh, as much as we know. And there is breaking news related to this. The underlying report, which is a whistleblower's complaint, um, has now been uh, declassified and released. However, um, we don't actually have access to it yet. So there you go. So Ben and I are going to talk about the wisdom of releasing the transcript um, or at least the live. Uh, so here's what I think happens. Here's my understanding of what happens when the president of the United States is on the phone. So keep this in mind. If you ever talk to Donald Trump on the phone, you are not the only one on the call. There are people who work for the CIA sitting in a room listening to that conversation, and they are typing it as fast as they can. So it's not a recording it is a, a live transcription done by people whose job it is to listen carefully and type quickly. And so that's what we have. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people, Ben, who uh, maybe are either surprised or not surprised that this is happening, that these guys sit in the situation room all the time. And this is what they do. Uh, guys and girls I actually don't know who these people are, but they are. This is their full time job. This is what they do. Um, I think there are probably uh, heads of state around the world who are surprised to know that their conversations are being transcribed in real time. Um, I also think it's terrible precedent for one of these um, transcriptions to now have been released because every conversation the president now has with anyone else in the back of that person's mind is, hmm, this is not a private conversation. That's an important insight. You know, at one time, all of these conversations were recorded, and you can go back into the archives and get conversations of Lyndon Johnson speaking to national leaders and so on. You're right. Now you have multiple transcriptionists who take it down in real time, compare their notes, and then come up with a transcript. And uh, that's archived for, for national purposes. However, as you say, the, this is not the first national leader that this has uh, been called into question. You may remember there was a, a conversation with the president of Australia that uh, uh, came to light uh, shortly after President Trump was, uh, was elected and several other uh, conversations with foreign leaders where the contents of which have been called into question in one way or another publicly and have been released uh, in some way. I, I think that in this particular case, you're right, if, if you're the head of another country, and you say, I'm going to speak with the president of the United States. For example, President Zelensky said the uh, the uh, investigations that we're going to do from now on are going to be done, quote, openly and candidly. Now, the question is, can he speak to the president of the United States openly and candidly about anything when it when he knows that if there's a certain amount of political pressure, then everything he says will be declassified and turned over for public scrutiny in the United States? because of internal political dynamics here uh, in the United States. 
I think that that's a real question is in, in terms of uh, our relationship with other countries, our ability to function in the intelligence community. And there's a moral component because politicians are using means to jockey for earthly positions. One day they're going to have to answer for the means that they are using uh, to try and, and get their earthly position and to get that power. I'm always reminded of uh, the quotation of a quotation in uh, the movie uh, A Man for All Seasons where uh, someone testifies against him. And uh, Thomas Moore says, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but for whales? And so what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but for D.C., for, for impeachment? Uh, what, what does it do to our country? What does it do to our ability to operate within the intelligence structure of defending the West against terrorism? And what does it do uh, to the souls of those who are, who are twisting and, and turning uh, this for political advantage? Okay, again, my conversation partner is Ben Johnson. He and I are are just taking several different angles to look um, at the, I don't know what blew up in the last couple of days, um, that we are now in what is described as a formal impeachment inquiry by the Congress of the United States, of the President of the United States. Um, at, at the center of all of this uh, is a phone call that the President of the United States had with the President of uh, Ukraine, his name is um, Zelensky, although I have heard it pronounced several different ways in the last couple of days. Um, can can I throw a word out to you and you can um, help us understand what it means? Please. The word is exculpatory. So I need like a little word of the day. What does exculpatory mean? Yeah, so exculpatory, uh, as as I understand it as a non-lawyer, Exculpatory yeah, evidence is, is, is evidence that works in favor of the accused. That, that would be the, the easiest way to say it. If, if someone is accused of a crime, exculpatory evidence would, would be evidence that seems to say that the person did not commit the crime. Okay. How about quid pro quo? Quid pro quo means, means tit for tat. Uh, you give me something, I will give you something. So uh, th that was the question. Uh, and initially, the reporting was that uh, Donald Trump had threatened to withhold military uh, aid of $400 million to Ukraine unless uh, the dirt on Joe Biden was turned over to Rudy Giuliani. As it turns out, there was no mention of, of military aid uh, in terms of uh, that kind of a quid pro quo uh, here. So tit for tat. All right. And and in the, and in this context of this larger conversation, um, the whistleblower. Whistleblower is anyone with uh, who's inside an organization who uh, is willing to come forward saying that something is going on that is illegal or immoral within that organization. So a whistleblower on the CIA, for example, might be someone who works in the White House. In this case, they say that the whistleblower didn't have firsthand knowledge of the conversation. Someone told them about the conversation. So it, it's not necessarily someone who works in the CIA. could be anyone who's who's associated with the White House or the intelligence community in any way, but a whistleblower steps forward and says something's going on here that shouldn't be done and it needs to be investigated. All right. So, Ben, you and I are probably going to, this is probably not a conversation that's going away quickly, but there's a lot of other, uh, there are a lot of other items that you and I um, should pay attention to in the coming weeks and months. Some of the uh, things related to not only our own Supreme Court, but things happening around the world, proposals by Democratic pres uh, presidential uh, candidates related to taxation and free speech and all kinds of things. So I look forward to talking with you every single week. Maybe next week we talk about something other than impeachment. May God so grant it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, thank you so so much much for your help today. So helpful. I look forward to Thursday all week long. So thanks so much. May God bless. Thank you so much, Ben. That's Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find him online at The Rights Writer. We'll be right back. So have you ever been to Israel? Have you ever wanted to go to Israel? Have you ever thought to yourself, um, I actually wonder whether or not the next generation of evangelical Christians in America is going to have the same heartbeat for Israel as um, as those of us who maybe are old enough to know um, the history of, uh, of the country. Um, so there's an organization called Passages. We've actually had them on the show before to talk about giving this opportunity to young people across the United States of America, um, giving them the opportunity to travel to Israel for actually a pretty extended trip um, to really learn every side of the ongoing conversation about the nation of Israel and what's happening there. Obviously, they get to see some uh, some amazing things as they are in the Holy Land, but they also get to uh, have really, I think, challenging and difficult conversations across all of um, those religious lines that exist in um, in the nation of Israel today. And so I've got a couple of, uh, of guys who actually went on a passages trip um, and they're just going to come and they're going to share with us uh, not only about their experience, but, you know, what they what they think now, now that they're back uh, home in the United States, how does it change the way they uh, read the news related to Israel and and relate to um, others in their age group who have very different views of uh, of Israel and its place in the world today. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The world of the generous gets bigger and bigger, and the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. This Bible verse from Proverbs is one of my favorites because it gives a glimpse of God's abundance. This is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. When I think of this Bible verse, an image comes to mind. It's Scrooge from the Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. In the story, he hoards all of his wealth and doesn't want to give any of it away. But he has no friends or family. He just has his money. In the end, he realizes how empty his life has been. He goes on a generosity spree and finds himself surrounded by the love of others. Make your world a bigger, more generous place by giving your time, talent, and treasure. You will feel more connected to others, and you'll experience a bigger, more content life as well. I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. Joining me now, Carter Crossett and Scott Apple. Uh, Both of these young men have recently made trips to Israel as a part of um, uh, a ministry called Passages. So Carter and Scott, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, so making a trip to Israel is actually uh, on the on the bucket list or the dream list for a lot of people. Um, and we want to talk uh, with you today about your experience of going, what you learned, maybe how it changed your perspective of things. Uh, let me just highlight for folks that over the last uh, 12 months, 4.6 million people have visited the nation of Israel, according to their tourism ministry. That's an 18% increase uh, compared to just the 12 months prior to that. And they're now like in their fifth year of year-over-year-over-year increases in the number of people who go and visit. So, um, Carter, let me just start with you. Um, When did you go? 
Um, why did you go and, um, and, and maybe how did it change your perspective on what you knew before you went? Uh, great question. Well, I've actually been to Israel three times now, two times with passages um, and one time with a bit of a study abroad kind of program. Um, but, you know, I think what really keeps pulling me back is uh, this concept of the land um, that we read about in Scripture and we are raised with hearing stories about um, when we kind of get that, that physical aspect of things to, to kind of attach to, to the things that we've been hearing about for so long. Um, so it really is kind of this life-changing experience to be able to now read through the biblical narrative and be able to visualize what's going on um, along with all of the, the cultural aspect and, and things of uh, modern issues that we, that we see when we're in the land there. Yeah, I would echo that. I would say that my first trip to Israel, there was no question that what changed for me was the way I read the Bible. Yeah, this absolutely, sure. absolutely, the the way I read the Bible changed radically after putting my feet, um, putting the putting my feet on the land. Scott, how about you? When did you go, um, and how did it change your perspective um, on on Israel? Yeah. So uh, as with Carter, I, I went with passages twice, once in uh, 2017, and then this last summer. Um, yeah, uh, it radically changed the way that I view the country as a whole. Um, I think just being there and being able to visualize things, uh, not only just in what we see in the media, uh, it helped me change that, but also in Scripture, I think more importantly, just being able to visualize that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, and then, of course, being a part of the culture and being able to, to see that, interact with them. Uh, yeah, it's changed a lot. It was big. I'm glad you brought up the word culture. Um, when you uh, when you think about your experiences in Israel, um, and Scott, I'll just hang with you for this question uh, first. Uh, when you use the word culture, tell us what you mean by that. I mean the the people, the places, the environment, the region. Uh, I mean you're, when when you're when you're there with passages, uh, or just in general, you're interacting with all of it. I mean. Uh, just from being able to be around uh, those who, who haven't grown up in America, uh, seeing, seeing uh, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and all these things, it's, uh, it's all of it. The food, I mean, yeah. Okay, food. I, I, wrote, um, I wrote actually down a couple of things in relationship to culture in terms of my own experiences there. Um, it smells different, um, and, uh, and the food is is certainly different. The way you share food, um, yeah. the way, you know, that there's a platter set in the middle of the table and everybody just reaches in and, right, you're using, I mean, it's it's a very different um, experience and then, then maybe what we experience here in the United States of America. Sabbath, the Sabbath experience, completely different um, than what we experience uh, here in the U.S. So lots of, lots of interesting um, cultural um insights. Carter, you want to add anything to the culture conversation? You know, it just kind of speaks to itself that looking around, all the signs are in three different languages, uh, English, Hebrew, and Arabic. Um, and it's just this really fascinating combination of a variety of different cultures in close proximity to one another that I really don't think you can experience in many places in the world. All right, so that leads me to my next question because that's going to surprise some people listening to us right now. That um, that not only signage, but the conversations that you overhear, 
they are not, most of them are in English, but they're not all in English. Many of them are in Arabic. That's actually a surprise to a lot of people because we tend to think of Israel as a Jewish nation and therefore populated only by Jewish people. Uh, Carter, address that misconception. Yeah, well, you know, uh, when we talk about land, there's really no such thing as a vacuum. Um, And Israel is a relatively young nation, um, only about uh, a little less than 100 years old. Um, And so there were uh, entities that were not Jewish living there before. Um, And so we do have uh, quite a far-reaching Muslim population there. Um, Before Israel was established, it was uh, the British mandate, um, so there was a pretty big Western population there. Um, So you really uh, experience a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds um, just in one city block, really. Um, Scott, uh, you you and Carter actually both led worship when you were in Israel um, as a part of these passages experiences. And, And let me just tell our listeners, you can check out the trips that we're talking about at passagesisrael.org, passagesisrael.org. Um, I'm talking with Carter Crossett and Scott Apple about their experiences on passages trips. Scott, you guys both, um, during your experiences in Israel, you led worship. Tell me about what that was like for you. Oh, my gosh. Uh, It was an absolute thrill of an experience, such a blessing to be a part of. I mean, uh, being able to lead worship in the Holy Land was was something that I never thought I was ever going to get the chance to do. And it wasn't something that I thought I wanted until I found out that it was an opportunity. Um, And so just being able to be that for those people on the trips, uh, being able to be uh, a part of something bigger than yourself during worship, uh, leading the participants of the trip, something that uh, when I was a participant, there was a worship leader. And I just remember thinking like, wow, this is amazing. This is one of the capstones of the trip is just being able to worship congregationally with so many different people from so many different backgrounds worshiping the same God. And when I think about that, I'm always blown away when I read through Scripture about what worship truly is and how it's true. It's just I'm blown away by the by congregational worship for God. Um, I note here, Scott, that you went to Hannibal LaGrange University. Um, I'm, I will just admit to you, I'm not familiar with Hannibal LaGrange. Is that a, is that a, is that a, is that a Christian school? Is that a secular yeah. school? Yeah, it's a Southern Baptist school. Okay. And, um, and Carter, you went to Gordon College. I'm guessing that both of you had uh, worship experiences on your campus. Is that true? That is true. Yep. Okay. So, so Carter, I'm going to jump to you um, because you are now also at Duke Divinity School, where I assume there is worship held on campus. There is. We have chapel three times a week. Okay. So I want you to just give a little reflection here to your experience, um, you know, on the Gordon College campus in terms of worship experience, your worship experience at Duke Divinity School, and your worship experience on uh, uh, leading worship on a Passages Israel trip. Um, and just just kind of walk us around in your experience. Sure. Um so while I was at Gordon, I just graduated this past May, um, I was in charge of all of the contemporary worship um, that we had in our chapel gatherings there. Um, and something interesting about Gordon is, uh, you know, like a passages trip, which is what I think it prepared me well for, um, there are over 40 different denominations and faith traditions present in a worship gathering at Gordon. Um, and it is the largest gathering gathering. 
of evangelicals in New England, um, which is something really special that I got to be a part of. Um, but as a result, you know, you get buses on, on a passages trip um, that are so diverse. Um, and, and it's similar here at Duke, um, I believe. Um, you know, there's richness of tradition, um, but you'll find people from Methodist, from Catholic, from Presbyterian, from Baptist backgrounds all, all over the place. Um, and so leading worship in Israel in a, in a foreign place was really special because um, for, for that same reason, I, I remember one worship night, there was one bus that had a, was a very charismatic kind of Pentecostal leaning to them. And then another bus was um, a Syrian Orthodox background. And it just kind of the two coming together in, in a worship gathering was, was really special. I kind of took a moment and said into the mic, I said, you know, look around at the people around you from all these different backgrounds, because that's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. You know, when we all get to heaven, we'll all be worshiping together, um, but, you know, backgrounds aside. So it's really special. Okay, I love that. Um, when we come back, I'm going to end, I'm going to ask you guys to um, specifically uh, tell us what um, what passages is and who participates and how people can find out more about it. I'm talking with Carter Crossett and Scott Apple. They have both recently participated in Passages Israel trips. They've actually both led worship on subsequent trips to Israel with Passages, and we're going to continue our conversation uh, in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Continuing my conversation with Carter Crossett and Scott Apple, two gentlemen who participated in Passages Israel trips. Um, part of the reason that I'm talking with them is because I I need to be reminded that God is raising up a next generation, a new generation of his people, um, and that that next generation uh, needs those of us who are older than them to provide opportunities for them to experience things like Passages Israel um, we also need to provide uh, opportunities for them to uh, grow their platform of influence. And so that's part of what we're doing right now. We are um, we're talking with Carter and Scott as brothers in Christ who are young, um, for whom God has uh, not only a future plan, but one of hope and one of leadership in the life of his church, not only here in the United States of America, but globally, and has given them the opportunity to lead worship in Israel as a part of Passages Israel. You can check out what we're talking about at passagesisrael.org. So guys, um, here's, here's the next conversation I want to have. What, what is Passages? Who goes? And how can people connect? So um, Scott, I'll let you take that question first. Sure. Uh, so Passages is essentially uh, a company that desires to see young Christians grow in their faith, and in their leadership and in their uh, thinking capabilities by taking them on trips to Israel. They learn about the biblical times there as well as the modern times. Uh, and they really just throw uh, as much information as they can uh, at you in order for you to understand. Um, and, yeah, connecting with them. Uh, sorry, who goes? Uh, essentially anyone, any any Christian looking to connect with the Holy Land. Uh, like Carter was saying, uh it's, it's multiple different denominational backgrounds. It's really not about what denomination you're a part of. Passages is worried, is concerned about, do you, do you know Christ? And do you want to get to know more about his land and his, his Bible? Like, and so uh, 
connecting with them is easy. Uh, they've got a website, Passages Israel. Um, you go on there, they've got uh, – they're, they're represented at multiple campuses across the country, uh, as well as uh, churches and other organizations. Um, so honestly, uh, connecting with them is, is relatively easy. And, uh, yeah, it's a great experience. So um, Passages, just in terms of uh, total transparency here, um, is sponsored by the Philos Project, and um, I'm on the advisory board of Philos. So uh, for my listeners who wonder, why is Carmen talking about um, Passages, and maybe she's not highlighting some other great, great organization that is out there that uh, helps young people go to Israel and have this experience? Well, it's because this is the one Carmen happens to know best. So um, so uh, Carter, when you when you think about the experience that participants have on a passages trip. Um, what if there's a if there's a young person listening right now? Like, first of all, uh, a little shout out here to our listeners in Hartford, Connecticut, um, because Gordon College is at least in your uh, in your realm of influence. Um, I did not know that mm-hmm. Chapel at Gordon is the largest gathering of evangelicals anywhere in the anywhere in the Northeast. That is pretty exciting. Um, so so Carter. I want you to just speak right now to either young people who might be listening, college students who might be listening, or you know, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends of college students who might be listening. Why, why do this? Why take time out to, uh, to invest in a passages trip um, this next summer? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I would really like to highlight that um, college um, – and, you know, even post-college a little bit, um, those years are really formative in young adulthood. Um, you know, you're kind of out on your own for the first time. You're learning a lot about the world that you live in. Um, you're kind of having to wrestle with how your faith can relate to all of this new information that you're learning about the world. Um, and so through their trips, I, I think that passages give a real physical context um, through which you can interpret, you know, all of these stories that college students have, have grown up hearing, but in a new light. Um, I remember, you know, just sitting in Jerusalem for the first time, right in the city of David, um, and our guide had us open up to Psalm 125, um, which says, you know, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. And he just had us look around at the mountains surrounding the city. Um, and it's, so it's, it's examples like that, um, that are really enriching for people as they are kind of growing into this new era of their faith, but also really helpful um, to anchor it to. All right, Scott, we have like uh, one minute left. Um, I want you to share with people who are listening the hope that you have for the next generation. Oh man. Uh, My prayer is that the Lord would just build up the next generation for people who want to see hearts change and know Christ. Um, and I think that's done through many things, through mentorship, uh, through opportunities, through the churches, uh, and and I think Passages and many many companies like Passages are also doing that, building up young people in their faith to go out and proclaim the name of Christ and have the world come to know Him. All right, we're going to be praying for you guys, uh, Carter and Scott. Uh, Carter, we know that you are at Duke Divinity School uh, pursuing a master's in theology. Scott, um, where where are you right now, and what are you doing? Yeah, I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, I'm partnered with Thrive Residencies. It's uh, part of Thrive Lawn Sale, which is a nonprofit here in Knoxville, uh, serving at-risk youth. Uh, and I'm working at a nonprofit called Cedarbrook Outreach, which is also here in Knoxville. So another nonprofit. Love that. 
All right. Blessings. Blessings, uh, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us today. You guys can check it all out at passagesisrael.org. We'll be right back. All right. So um, uh, although, you know, I'm not allowed to say on non-commercial radio uh, exactly what something costs, uh, the concern has been raised by somebody that uh, that was an elitist conversation um, that people, you know, I'm talking with have the financial resources, not for one trip, but for multiple trips to Israel. Uh, actually, if you would take the time to go to the Passages Israel website, um, we're talking about college students who don't have a lot of money. And um, that's why there are major sponsors of these trips. Um, if you go to the website, you will see that this costs almost nothing to participate. Um, and so if you can afford to give up a couple of weeks of time uh, not working during your summer vacation as a college student, Passages Israel will make it possible for you to participate if you, um, you know, if you qualify otherwise as a confessing believer who wants to learn more. All right. There you go. Um, OK, so we've uh, we've covered a lot of terrain here this morning. Um, and we are going to have to continue to till the soil of uh, of impeachment. But next up, I'm going to have a conversation with Alan Cross. He and I are going to talk about um, refugee resettlement and the numbers here in the United States. And, wow, uh, what it sounds like maybe uh, the number of zero in terms of refugees that we're going to receive here um, in the coming year. All right, you are listening to Mornings with Carmen. Check us out online at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.